Red 6, this is Blue Actual. Do you copy over? Roger, Blue Actual. Red 6 copies. Red 6, bring up your platoon to the line. Roger, Blue Actual. We're on the move. Welcome, my friends, to the View from the Front podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine, an author, and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. Each week, I primarily do three things. Cover emerging hotspots and foreign policy news that you absolutely should know. Work to unite our country and remind us of how lucky we are to live in America. And finally, I always share plenty of motivation and wisdom at the end of each episode. This podcast comes out every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. And if you love the show, you can always help sustain and support it for $5 per month. Or you can sign up for a year, save 10 bucks, pay only 50 per year. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the May 25th edition of The View from the Front. We're really glad to have you here. we got a ton to cover today, and I feel quite confident these are some things you haven't seen in the news. As I always say, our media does a terrible job of covering our military and potential hotspots, so I'm hoping to fill this void. Uh, as the regular listeners know, I've, I have timestamps in the episode notes, so if you want to jump to a certain section, you can easily do so. And as always, we'll end with plenty of motivation and wisdom. We're going to begin with just a really short segment on the country of Turkey, we talked a lot in the last edition or the last episode about Erdogan, who's facing a runoff. Uh, we talked about why Turkey was a, an important country. It has the second largest NATO, uh, military in NATO. And if you don't know what's going on in Turkey, you really should jump to the previous episode, listen to, to it for about five minutes or so. I do a really good recap on all that. I'm not going to go through that again. But if you recall, I did mention that what will probably decide the election is who the third place candidate endorsed. Uh, the third place candidate got about 5% of the vote in uh, the middle part of May, and it was uncertain whether that person might endorse Erdogan or perhaps the challenger, who's more of a pro European type leader and would probably do some reforms for Turkey and move it away from the authoritarian tendencies of Erdogan. But unfortunately, just as an update on that story, the third place contender did endorse Erdogan, so that probably helps um, seal his potential victory. One final thing I did want to mention about Turkey is if you look in the source notes, if you want to go take a look, it's of course free to do so. You can do so from my Substack page since not all of them transfer over to the uh, episode notes in Apple or if you're listening somewhere else. But there's literally a image of Erdogan next to his opponent, who is named, but who has no picture shown because Turkish media is apparently not allowed to show his face, which is just ridiculously shameful. And that's one of the reasons I wanted Erdogan to lose in a defeat. But... Again, the third place challenger unfortunately endorsed Erdogan, so we'll know in a couple weeks if Erdogan emerges victorious. The next story I wanted to cover is one that I'm not sure I thought I would ever be saying for, I feel like, the better part of almost nine months or a year. We have teased to this story, kind of talked about this story, hinted to this story. Ukrainian officials have pleaded for the news that I'm about to share. But finally, nine months, maybe almost a year after Ukrainians have begged for this to happen, it is finally happening. 
What am I talking about? I'm talking about F-16 fighter jets going to Ukraine. Now this is something that for a long time a lot of Ukrainian officials have said could be a game changer. A lot of defense analysts, a lot of military generals have said if Ukraine had F-16s, things would be vastly different. And since the last episode came out, the Biden administration has said that it will allow European allies to provide American F-16s to Ukraine, and that furthermore, the U.S. will support a joint effort to train the Ukrainian pilots. That was announced on Monday. It's already apparently starting to begin to happen with some countries such as Norway immediately stepping into the fold to begin training Ukrainian pilots on how to fly the F-16. Now, some analysts say it'll take three or four months or so to get them up to speed, so I'm not sure how fast all this will happen, but it is finally starting to happen, and that's a big deal for Ukraine. In fact, the uh, Ministry of Defense, a spokesperson for them in Ukraine, said that they think that we could perhaps see F-16s flying in Ukrainian airspace as soon as September or early October. So that's fairly quickly in terms of length of time in the war. That was a uh, quote that was published in the uh, Washington Post from an interview. As you probably would guess, the Russians are not happy about this news. In fact, they put out some official statements saying that giving Ukraine uh, F-16s is a colossal risk, was the word they used. A colossal risk. As anyone who's been listening or following this war knows, Russia has continually warned of escalations or red lines that the U.S. would cross, and they said that about the multiple launch rocket systems we sent. They've said that about tanks. They've said that about so many things, but this is the latest. They called it a colossal risk, and I've got to give President Biden some uh, props on this. He had an epic reply to their warning. Uh, he was in a press gaggle overseas, and a reporter shot, shouted out that what was his comment about this colossal risk and President Biden replied, it is, meaning it is a colossal risk. And then he said, for them, <laughs> which obviously he means the Russians. So a reporter was like, hey, they say it's a colossal, colossal risk. And Biden replies, it is for them. I've got a link to that. It's kind of hard to hear the reporter's question, but a pretty epic reply. And I'm glad that increasingly the Biden administration realizes that all these threats by Russia are just... They're just hot air, so. I do, however, have to kind of tell the full story, or the flip side. I was so happy about this news about the F-16s. I've been hoping it would happen for so, so long. And then, as I'm scrolling through kind of the various sites that I look at to get, you know, as wide-ranging a view of defense news as possible, I see a headline that says, F-16s would make no fundamental change in Ukraine's war effort. U.S. Air Force Secretary says, and I'm like, whoa, 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 what? Are you serious? And so at first I'm like, this has got to be clickbait. It's got to be not true. This is, we've been talking about F-16s for almost a year now. Like, uh, how can this possibly be? So this was put out by Defense One. I'm like thinking there's no way this could possibly be true. So I'll go read the article. And it was definitely not clickbait. And so they quote the uh, U.S. Air Force Secretary, who should know something about this situation. And they said it was, again, the they used the word, no fundamental change. It, the Air Force Secretary said it would give Ukrainians and 
increment of capability that they don't have right now, but that it wouldn't be a dramatic game changer as far as their total military capabilities. And so I'm like, wow, I've got to read more into this. So I read a little bit more, and the argument that Frank Kendall, the Air Force Secretary, is making is that while there are manned and unmanned aircraft flying over Ukraine every day, air power has not been a decisive factor, Kendall argues, since Russia invaded, because neither side has been able to gain control of the skies. And so Kendall said that both sides has generally used aircraft for fairly limited operations, and part of the reason for that is that the ground-based air defenses on both sides has been so strong that neither can really overcome those ground systems, those air-to-air missiles, etc. And so the Air Force Secretary says the F-16s aren't going to make any fundamental change in Ukraine's war effort. So just in the interest of providing as balanced a view and as honest a view as possible, that is what the Air Force Secretary is saying. I still think the fighters are so much better than anything that Russia has that it's going to really strengthen in the months to come and in the years that follow because Russia will always be a threat to Ukraine and eventually this war will end and eventually Ukraine will probably become a member of NATO and so this starts the ball rolling of having a more sophisticated and upgraded air force to defend the skies of Ukraine. So I'm not sure in the short term just reading that it, it has given me a little pause because I'm like, well, that's probably true. They can't get too close to the front lines, but they could probably help defend airspace better against incoming missiles, and they probably have better or provide a better launch platform for some of the long-range missiles that are being fired. And I do know they have much better radar than many of the Ukrainian fighters, so they're definitely going to strengthen the air defense. But... I will give one more final thing that kind of goes back to where I originally stood about it being a big deal, which is if they're not going to be that effective, if if everyone is on the same side as our U.S. Air Force Secretary, that it's not no fundamental change, etc., then why does Russia say it's a colossal risk? Think about that. <laughs> why? If they're not that big a deal, why... Why has Ukraine pushed for them for so long? And why does Russia say it's a colossal risk? So I'm not sure if they have more aggressive plans to fly low around radar, do some things that we don't know. I'm not sure, but I just want to give you guys as full a picture as possible. And that's what I try to do every single week, even when there's news that I don't, that that doesn't go along with what I'm thinking or what I'm hoping or what I believe. I definitely want to put it out there. So that's the fair coverage of the news about F-16s. Let's move from the air to the ground now. And more specifically, I'm talking about Bakhmut, which is the city in eastern Ukraine that has been a part of the epic battle. The largest battle by far of the war. It's now lasted more than nine months. The losses in this battle have been just horrific. In fact, although Ukraine doesn't report its own casualties, Wagner, which is the private military group under Prigozhin, has said that he lost 20,000 troops 
trying to take this city. We That doesn't even include, of course, the number of Russian casualties. So the fighting the last nine months there has just been horrific. It's been immense. It has totally flattened the town, minus just a few buildings. But there are no civilians that live there. This city that had been around for 400 years and once had 70,000 residents living in it is just shambles. Having said all that, Russia is celebrating that it's reporting that it has fully captured Bakhmut, just something that Putin has wanted desperately. And in some of the Russian media reporting on it, they are comparing this to uh, the level of the same type of celebration that occurred when Berlin was captured in Germany in 1945 at the war, at the end of World War II. So they're celebrating this as a massive victory for Russia, for the Russian troops. And so initially earlier this week, the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, said that Russian forces were not completely occupying Bakhmut. So he cast doubt on those words from Russia that it had fallen. But I'm mainly sharing this because he's backtracked on it just a tad since then. But there's one clue from this story that I thought was definitely worth mentioning and just putting a pin in it, so to speak, so that when what happens happens, which I think will happen, you'll say, hey, uh, we saw this coming. But in this AP article... Uh, Zelensky said, quote, We are not throwing people away to die. People are the treasure. I clearly understand what is happening in Bakhmut. I cannot share with you the technical details of what is happening with our warriors. So again, I want to emphasize that he said, I cannot share with you the technical details of what is happening with our warriors. And that's all he said on that. Now, a spokesperson for the Ukraine's Eastern Command said that there are defensive forces and offensive actions happening on the flanks near Bakhmut. So that was all that said. Now, obviously, last week we discussed how Ukrainians were starting to launch offensive attacks on the flanks of Bakhmut. There's some higher ground there. It's a little easier to control. And voila, you fast forward a day or two, and there was an article in the Washington Post that essentially goes into what President Zelensky was hinting to. This article in the Washington Post was headlined, Russia controls Bakhmut for now, but holding it will be difficult. And I wanted to share just a couple or three things from that article that essentially explains what Zelensky was hinting to. So, the article talks about a few things that I think are definitely worth mentioning. First of all, it used a great phrase. It said that Russia's, quote, disjointed forces. And what it was referring to is obviously there's been lots of friction between the private military contractor group, Wagner, and the Russian forces. The head of Wagner, Prigozhin, has obviously screamed and cursed at some of the logistical situations with the Russian army. There have been reports that the two sides have even fired at each other. So it's a disjointed military force that controls the city at the moment. On top of that, Wagner and Prigozhin have talked about they are pulling back. They have to refit, retrain, bring in more 
prison recruits and convicts and fill out their forces because they have been decimated. Again, Wagner, and according to Prigozhin, Wagner has lost 20,000 troops taking Bakhmut. So they're going to pull back. Anytime you pull back, it is a very risky thing because you have to bring in other forces to take the position of the groups that are pulling back. This is a very, very difficult thing to do in the middle of war. There have been many historical instances of how this has failed. So I did want to mention the disjointed military unit and the fact that they're going to have to do a very difficult military maneuver while under superb observation from drones and other platforms that Ukraine has to see Bakhmut. You can watch tons of social media that shows all the different cameras and all the different platforms that they're constantly watching every inch of Bakhmut. So this will not be easy for Russia or Wagner to do. The article also mentions what I've already discussed, which is that there's still the flat fighting on the flanks. And then finally, the article reminds us that Bakhmut might follow history that has happened before where Russia has taken a city only to turn around and have it retaken by Ukraine. And the article mentions three big cities, all of which you may recognize. One of them is Izium. The second one is Lyman. The third one is Kherson. Certainly, Izium and Kherson made a little bit more news than Lyman, but this has happened in the past where Russia will really stretch hard to take a city so that it has this public relations victory, but then it turns around and ends up losing it. And in the case of Bakhmut, if Russia isn't really careful, the flanks could get completely circled and they could have the entire force encircled and cut off. This leads me partly to my question is, could Bakhmut be Russia's Stalingrad? Now, just for a bit of quick history, for those who don't remember, Stalingrad was the crucial battle that happened toward the end of World War II that literally was universally regarded now as the turning point in the European theater of war. So Germany had pushed toward Moscow, and in the southern part of the Soviet Union, they had pushed towards Stalingrad. They wanted to take Stalingrad so bad. They take this, the battle begins initially, the air attack alone, they dropped a thousand tons of bombs in 48 hours, which is more than they dropped in London at the height of the Blitz that everyone knows about. No one knows as much about Stalingrad, but it was crucial in Hitler's mind that he take the city. So they start with this huge air attack, they flatten a lot of the city, they start to take the city. There's fighting street by street, super urban, ugly fighting horrendous casualties on both sides. But after fighting and fighting and fighting, the Germans finally take the city. Hitler has his victory, or so he thinks. So Germany controls Stalingrad. Everything seems great for the moment, but then the Russians encircle the entire city. They manage to take the entire city. They go around it on the flanks of both sides. They encircle it. The forces that encircle it they have they set up a line that faces toward Germany in case reinforcements try to break the line, and then they take and face the other direction with part of their forces in case the Germans try to break out of the city to bust through the line because they need a line of communication. The big flaw was 
Hitler believed that the Luftwaffe, which was the German Air Force, could keep the city supplied and a huge military mistake was made because a German commander believed that reinforcements from Germany could break through the line. So they command the forces inside Stalingrad not to try to bust through the line. Just hold your position. We will break through the encirclement. We will keep you supplied. And in the end, they could not. And so these Forces are starving inside Stalingrad. When all is said and done, 235,000 Germans troops, mostly German, but it includes some troops from Italy, Romania, and a couple of other countries that were allied with the Nazis. But 235,000 men have to surrender. A million were killed in the battle. And so there was this massive, massive turning point in the war when at that point Hitler had to know if he had any common sense that he had lost. He had completely lost the war in this blunder. And so Stalingrad was considered the turning point of the World War II for Germany. And it's odd because we we don't give Stalingrad the amount of attention that it deserves because it happened inside Russia and we just don't give it as much attention as it deserves. But my question is, is could Bakhmut be Russia's Stalingrad? They've pushed through. They've taken the city. They've given Putin his big victory that he wanted, that he now compares to taking Berlin at the end of World War II. They give Putin Bakhmut, but already the flanks are starting to get encircled. And already, this military that is very disjointed, as the Washington Post called it, with Wagner and the Russian military not getting along, and Wagner's talking about trying to pull out, these are not good signs if you are a Russian soldier in Bakhmut. They're not good signs if you're a Russian mother or father and your son is in Bakhmut. I would not want to be in Bakhmut right now, but... I'm just throwing out the question is, could Bakhmut be Russia's Stalingrad? Because it looks to me like there's a good chance they're going to get encircled. And eventually, all of these troops that fought so hard, that pushed through, and have finally, after nine months and at least 20,000 casualties, taken Bakhmut, the question is, what will happen to them in the weeks to come? Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications It's free to do so unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. Make sure to visit my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email so you'll never miss a future show. Again, that's free. Or you can support the show and help me reach my dreams by signing up for a $5 per month subscription. People are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books sooner, which I promise you I'm trying to do. Believe me, the best way to support me is by signing up for a paid subscription on my Substack page. Long term, becoming a full-time author again would provide more time for me to write fiction, cover news, and try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things I feel drawn to do, which my regular listeners definitely know. So again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com, or you can sign up at Patreon or Venmo. All of these links can be found 
on my Substack page, and obviously you can cancel at any time. Let's talk for just a moment about a potential place in the very long 600-mile line that the Russian troops are trying to guard, but a place where Ukraine could potentially break through. And I came across this in a uh, Washington Post article, kind of buried in it actually, that Russia is increasingly concerned that if you look at their line, there's they are in the Donbass region way up in the east, and that's kind of near where Bakhmut has been and a lot of fighting there. And then their lines go to the south, and then they start moving way uh, west toward Kherson, which would lead into Crimea and the Crimean Peninsula. So a lot of people have said, well, it's going to be very hard to take the Crimean Peninsula. You've got to cross a river. There's a lot of flooded areas there that are swampy. It's hard for vehicles to move through. And there's really only one axis of attack because the Crimean Peninsula is obviously a peninsula. It's very clear where you're going to have to go through. And Russia actually has about three lines of defenses there. So they expect it there. It's also very clear that Ukraine wants to take Crimea back badly. It's a very strategic part of the area. It has the huge naval base. It's partly where Russia launched this invasion. And so they want to cut off Russia's Black Sea fleet, and they want to recapture this very valuable strategic part of what was Ukraine. So everyone knows that's part of what they want to do. And I came across this in a Washington Post article. And from time to time, I've seen this in the past, but it does look like that one thing that Ukraine might be wanting to do is cut in half the land bridge that Russia established. Now, this land bridge is when they invaded Kiev and Ukraine for the third time last February, almost more than a year ago now, they were able to push troops from Russia proper and connect Crimea so that there wasn't just a bridge that connected this peninsula to Russia. There was actually a land bridge now or area that they controlled so that they can move supplies on highways, move troops on highways, and just make it a more secure area. And so the Washington Post article said that increasingly Russia's worried that this land bridge could be cut. Uh, it named a couple of possible towns. Um, the one that it actually named to me doesn't seem like a good one because it's kind of split by a river. And anytime you have a city that is split by a river, it's very difficult to take. That's part of what's happened in the southern part of Ukraine around Kherson. It's just rivers and military maneuvers. Those don't go together usually. So, But there are several places where they could do it. And so that might be what Ukraine has up its sleeve for part of its spring offensive is they cut the land bridge so that these highways and roads that Russia is using to keep Crimea fully supplied would be cut. And then the second thing they would have to do to further isolate the Crimean Peninsula is they would need to destroy the Kerch Bridge. Now we've talked about that. In fact, I looked it up in my notes in August 2022. So that's been what, about, eh, about nine months ago. I covered it a lot. Just a brief reminder, the Kerch Bridge, it's the largest, longest bridge in Europe. I mean, it's an impressive architectural uh, feat that Russia has done. So it's a 12-mile long bridge. It literally has four lanes, two going both ways, and 
it has a double track railway so they can send trains both ways very impressive it allows russia to keep crimea you know it allows russian tourists to go there to visit because before this war it was a beautiful place for people to visit it's where tourists still like to go every now and then you'll see them on the beach and there'll be explosions in the background and then they all go running into their little uh, hotels and rooms that they're staying in but a lot of russians like to go there they cross this bridge Ukraine has already attacked the bridge once, and now with these long-range missiles from the UK, they could again attack that bridge. So, essentially, if you want to take Crimea, you could try to go through this very hard fighting through these swampy, wet areas down a single axis through three lines of defenses, or you cut the land bridge where Russian forces control the highways, and then you also destroy this massive bridge that goes over the water if you cut those two things at some point russia could try to keep the place you know supplied through naval means but increasingly ukraine is trying to use anti-ship missiles to prevent russian forces from using their navy effectively they've also been using navy sea drones which are just you know unmanned small ships filled with explosives. They actually launched one of those attacks this week that was unsuccessful, but they launched three of these drones, which are just fast-moving little ships full of explosives toward one of the Russian ships. In this case, Russia was successful, and they did stop them. But in the past, they have damaged ships with these small, very fast little speed unmanned boats full of explosives. So we'll see how that plays out. While we are on the subject of offensives and places Ukraine may or may not attack, Russia has already had to deal with a very small offensive again this week. Uh, Russia is alleging that Ukrainian saboteurs crossed into Russia to launch an attack. Ukraine, on the other hand, is arguing that these were disgruntled Russians, part of a couple of groups that no longer want Putin to be in power. What is not in dispute is that this group attacked into Russia easily, apparently, and took part of a few towns in the Belgorod region. This made huge news for obvious reasons because it looked like either Ukraine was attacking into Russia, which is something that hasn't really been done, certainly not on land yet, but at the same time it started to look like what could be the beginning of an uprising because this group was saying we're not Ukrainian fighters we are Russian fighters and they were doing lots of social media in interviews especially after the fact where they are showing their faces and they're saying we are Russians there were a couple of shocking things about this first it seemed to take Russia a long time to push these fighters back and I'm talking like 24, then it went into 36, then it went into 48 hours, and there was almost nothing from Russia. And these groups are just posting these videos all over social media, and they're saying things like, we're going to go on to Moscow, and and you've got this major country that's supposed to be a threat to the world that can't seem to deal with this you know, invasion of its own land by a couple of groups. Now, I've got maps in the source notes. If you want to look where this is, again, it's in the Belgorod region. It's not near any of the fighting. So these borders are not very well protected by Russia because Russia never assumed 
that anyone would try to attack into Russia from Ukraine. Now, again, these are Russian fighters, according to all the interviews. Ukraine says they certainly did not have anything to do with it, although some later interviews said that Ukraine knew about the operation. But I've got a map in the notes if you want to see where exactly Belgorod is. I don't expect you to know that. But it is in basically the northern part of Ukraine. Now, Russia did eventually fight back, and they claim that they put heavy losses on these groups and that they killed 70 fighters and they destroyed four infantry vehicles and five pickup trucks. There, And I, I did share, in fact, in the source notes, some YouTube footage, a video that shows these destroyed vehicles. And it does appear there's some ugly airstrikes on them. It does appear that Russia finally got its act together, got some forces moved there, and finally put some serious hurt on them. But then at the same time, I'm also sharing video from the group where they move out of Russia, they go back into Ukraine, they do lots of videos, and these guys look super confident. They don't even appear that harmed, so I'm not sure if maybe they left some vehicles there, maybe these abandoned vehicles were destroyed. They it's very it's very hard to tell, but this looks like a very confident group and they do not seem at all worried about Russia. And in fact, they continue to taunt the Russian president, Putin, and all the leaders in Russia. And they say that this is just the first of many to come. The New York Times had a great article about this. And I just want to summarize two points from that article, which is that the two goals seem to be of these groups is to divert Russian troops from along that very long line, that 600-mile long line, and then they also wanted to embarrass Putin, and especially the timing of the attack seems to be that as Russia took Bakhmut, they wanted to distract Western attention in the media from this city, this historic victory that Russia is claiming. They immediately showed that in just like one day, they took way more land than had been taken in Bakhmut. They did it easily, so they really did embarrass Putin in this. And they really do seem to be serious about doing future attacks across the Russian border. Now, the primary two groups that took part in this, again, they're ethnic Russian fighters. Many of them are Russian citizens. They oppose Putin. Many of them were not wearing masks. They're not afraid to identify themselves. The first one is called the Legion of Free Russia. And the second one is called the Russian Volunteer Corps. Now, they were using some Ukrainian equipment, and some of them, two of them were American Humvees. The U.S. said that American equipment was not to be used in attacks or land invasions of Russia, so they got kind of got their hands smacked. Now, the group says a lot of this stuff you can buy on the black market and that this wasn't American equipment. So whoever's right or wrong about that is going to you know be up in the air for a bit. But again, the two groups, the Legion of Free Russia, and the second one's called the Russian Volunteer Corps, and they do plan on doing additional future attacks. And this was obviously a huge media victory for them, and it's probably shocking for Russians to start seeing that, hey, there are groups that want to overthrow Putin. So these are the kind of things that you hope gain momentum.
So we've only got a few more news items to cover as the show is moving along quickly. I've been trying to make the show a little faster, more compact, and so I'd gotten some feedback that, that you guys appreciated that, and that's what I'm trying to do. So let's move through two more quick Ukraine things. I'll make them super short. And then we got really interesting stuff that I want to talk about. One quick thing in the Middle East involving Iran, and then I wanted to mention one thing about Afghanistan, which I think you will find amazingly hilarious because it involves some tension between Afghanistan and Iran, and it's a story that I can't wait to tell you about. But first, so the Biden administration did announce a new aid package to Ukraine. It was smaller, much smaller than some of the previous ones. This one was for $375 million. It includes new ammunition for those rockets, the multiple launch rocket systems, the HIMARS. So it's got plenty of that. It's got plenty of artillery ammunition, 155 millimeter, as well as 105 millimeter. It's got lots of anti-tank missiles in it. It's got tow missiles. Those are the tube launch optically tracked wire guided, which is a very long line or description for what they're called, but most people just call them tow missiles. They're usually on top of Humvees and other vehicles. So it's got some tow missiles in it. It's got some Javelin missiles. Those have been getting a lot of attention because of those attack from the top, but they're launched by regular infantry. It's got AT-4 anti-armor systems in it. Those are They can be used against tanks, and they are used against tanks, but you really don't want to use them against tanks because they're very short range, and they're not guided. You just pop up the tube. I've fired these multiple times. They're not super accurate, and I would not want to use one against a tank. You want to destroy a tank before it gets to that point, but in many cases, they are great to shoot at trenches and bunkers, and so I think that's what they will primarily be used for. There were some other things announced in that aid package, including... Uh, including what I thought was very important, armored bridging systems. So, again, Ukraine is upping its bridging game. Also, while we are on the subject of aid, Japan has said that it's going to provide Ukraine with 100 vehicles, 30,000 dry rations, which that's no small thing. Those MREs or dry rations, these things are expensive and hard to get your hands on sometimes. So that's 100 vehicles, 30,000 dry rations. But what I also thought was pretty interesting is Japan is saying it will receive wounded Ukrainian soldiers for the first time in a Japanese um, hospital. So that's actually kind of a big deal because there have been some stories about how Ukrainian doctors are working just horrendously long shifts. And these wounded men and women will be brought in and they come out of one surgery and go straight into another. They're overworked and I have no doubt that while you you know their doctors are very good in Ukraine... I'm sure that supplies and patients and just they aren't rested. So I am sure that it is a big deal that some of these soldiers can be diverted to Japan to be treated there with just impeccable care. And I assure you that's something that, unfortunately for Russian soldiers, they're not getting. I obviously do sympathize with some of the Russian soldiers that have been put into this meat grinder by Vladimir Putin, who has shown he has no... No empathy or sympathy for either Ukrainian citizens or soldiers, nor for his own people who are barely trained and are being thrown into these just horrific fighting conditions in Ukraine. Let's move from Ukraine and Russia to the Middle East. And this is one of these stories I'm about to talk about that it's almost like the girl that cried wolf or the boy that cried wolf. I can't remember the story if it's a boy or girl, honestly. But regardless of which it is, we have... And American media talked about Iran and its potential 
work toward getting a nuclear weapon going back for so long that I think we've gotten numb to it. And this goes all the way back to the Trump administration and before that to the Obama administration. And they even were talking about it before that in the Bush administration. And so for so long, the U.S. has said, we're not going to let Iran get a nuclear weapon. And we've had deals here and there, one with one with Obama. We've had inspectors. We've had just, there's been a ton of history. And I think that it's been talked about so much that you literally get to the point where you don't even hardly read about it anymore. You can't even really get your mind around it. But there was an article this week in the Associated Press that was concerning and it talked about a facility where Iran is digging into the side of this huge mountain range and how the AP, working with experts and satellite imagery, believes that they have built a nuclear facility so deep in the earth that it is likely beyond the range of a last-ditch U.S. weapon that's designed to destroy such sites. So they looked at the photos and videos. The article talks about it a bit. It's near the Natanz nuclear site. This has been a place that has already had repeated sabotage attacks. And the AP talks about that, and I just want to quote a non-proliferation expert. And so I just want to read this one part. Completion of such a facility would, quote, be a nightmare scenario that risks igniting a new escalatory spiral, warns Kelsey Davenport. He's uh, Kelsey's the director of the nonproliferation policy at the Washington-based Arms Control Association. And then Kelsey Davenport goes on to say, given how close Iran is to a bomb, it has very little room to ratchet up its program without tripping U.S. and Israeli red lines. So at this point, any further escalation increases the risk of conflict. Now, again, I talked about crying wolf at the beginning of this. past few months, there have been some news items that I did not get squeezed in. I specifically remember there was one where the Secretary of Defense said that the U.S. would not allow Iran to get access to a nuclear weapon, and he said that very definitively. I also remember, and we did cover one, where the U.S. was doing an Air Force joint drill with Israel, where we were training on a hypothetical attack on an Iranian facility. Israel has said they will not allow Iran to have nuclear weapons. The U.S. has said it as well. I'm not sure if it'd be some type of joint strike But this is the kind of thing that, like I said, we've been talking about it for so long, going back more than 10 years, that you kind of just start to forget about it. But there have been nuggets along the way of Iranian small, uh, I guess the right word is attacks or escalatory type actions against shipping. We've talked about that some. Iran definitely seems like they are serious about it this time, and we have definitely said we're not going to let it happen. Israel has said they're not going to let it happen. This is one of those times where Saudi Arabia and probably some other countries in the Middle East are almost on Israel's side. They probably want this to be halted, because if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, then Saudi Arabia is going to want one. Obviously, those two are huge rivals. They don't like each other. They don't trust each other. And so I did just want to throw this out. This is one of those that if something doesn't change at some point, we are going to sleepwalk into a confrontation with Iran. And we certainly 
continued to get closer to that type of thing potentially happening. Okay, so that was a super deep and heavy section of the episode, and I definitely want to end on a lighter one. And this one is hilarious. We haven't talked about Afghanistan much because obviously the U.S. pulled out, and it's just been... Wow, what what can you even say? You know, I've a few I remember back I think it was in November I talked about how the Taliban was some of the fighters from the Taliban were starting to mess with Pakistan and there was a small basically guerrilla war started over there, but we really haven't covered Afghanistan much since then. The Taliban wanted us out. In my opinion, most of the people wanted us out. And so America left and they have dealt with a economy that's in shambles. They have dealt with religious fanatics running their government and controlling women and children as they have for centuries before we were ever there. But there is something funny. There, I'm only sharing this because it may or may not lead to something, but more than anything, it is hilarious. And that is, the Taliban is probably better at trolling people than anyone out there. It is... <laughs> Their bravado and just the way they troll people is amazing. So this story goes back a couple of months, but Iran has been increasingly demanding that Afghanistan, which is run by the Taliban, honor a treaty that was signed back in the 70s about that allows a certain number of million gallons of water to go into this dry, arid part of Iran. The river flows through Afghanistan into Iran. Now, most of the time, Iran and Afghanistan have been allies, and in fact, when the U.S. was there, Iran would often use some of its forces to help train the Taliban and arm them, and there are some allegations and even some evidence that Iranian fighters actually took part in some of those attacks, but I don't want to dig up all that history in this section. This is funny, because America leaves, and suddenly these two countries have to coexist with each other, and they're both run by religious fanatics who are crazy. I don't think anyone would disagree with that um, for either Iran or Afghanistan. They are driven, They are run by religious fanatics who are crazy. So Iran starts screaming at Afghanistan and the Taliban and has been doing so for increasingly for a few months saying, hey, you're, not, you're damming up this river, one of several, but that is supposed to supply our very dry, arid area. And it is... The Iranian part of the border, I did some research on it, it is devastated. This, These areas are very much devastated. Now, Afghanistan has been saying, hey, rainfall is low, there's been a drought, we can't send, like the water levels are too low to send what we need to send, or what was originally agreed to. And so, as time has gone on the past couple of months, Iranian threats have increased in their demands and so finally, the Taliban, in just epic troll fashion, finally, <laughs> after Iran warned Afghanistan that it has to start sending more. And so they're almost like starting to threaten force here. So <laughs> the Taliban post a video of one of their great generals and warlords. He's a famous member of the Taliban. His name is General Mobin. <laughs> This is almost worth seeing. I've got a link to it. If you're if you have Twitter, you have to go watch this. So they literally film this general take a small plastic jug, walk down some steps into this river, which does look pretty in their defense. It does look rather shallow. 
and he feels it, and and he's speaking in his language, but it's translated as. And this this video, by the way, is shared by Iranian TV, so they sent this to Iran. But this general, famous Taliban brave fighter, General Mobin, fills this yellow container, and in this mocking fashion, says, "Take this! Don't attack us! We're terrified!" And he starts mocking the Iranians, and it's it's honestly freaking hilarious. Because clearly the Taliban is not worried about Iran. And it's kind of hilarious from a Western perspective because Iran helped support the Taliban and now they're having to deal with what are clearly irrational, crazy people. So it's going to be funny to see how this plays out. And on a more serious note, I did put in a video that if you want to watch it, it's just a few minutes, three or four minutes. It kind of lays out going back to the 70s, the agreement why Iran thinks the Taliban isn't honoring the agreement and what might happen. So this could lead to some fighting between the two of them. They have fought a few times in the past on some border excursion issues. And so you've got two people who both think that they are um, divinely protected and both are pretty, you know, aggressive and certain that they will have victory on their side who are not going to bow to each other so we'll see what happens all right so i hope you enjoyed that little section and let's get to the best part of the show the motivation and wisdom part we're going to begin the motivation and wisdom section with a little pep talk because someone out there needs to hear this i know someone out there needs to hear this listen life is passing you by You only get one shot at life, and you're letting it slip through your fingers, day by day. Life has beaten you down, kicked you in the face, ignored you, punished you, rained on you, assailed you with illnesses and injuries, burdened you with debts and levels of despair that I know are breaking your spirit. But you have to get up. Do you hear me? You have to get up. You're going to get up, and you're going to get up now. And you're going to start fighting back. Do not let despair win. Get up and take a step forward to confront these things facing you right now. Do it now. And let the following items that I'm going to share lift your spirit and take you to a higher level. You can do this. You're meant to do this. And you have to do this. For yourself. For your family. For your creator. And with all of that being said, I truly hope these help pick up your spirits that they help revive your hopes, and that they help make you a better person. Alright, so I hope that pep talk helped motivate you and wake you up. And now that you're paying attention, let's share a few more items that, you know, I really hope help feed and motivate you. Here is the first one. We can't help everyone, but everyone can help someone. That's a good one, isn't it? We can't help everyone, but everyone can help someone. Next one. When you are living the best version of yourself, you inspire others to live the best versions of themselves. That's a good one, isn't it? Again, when you are living the best version of yourself, you inspire others to live the best versions of themselves. It's a good one. Next one. A friend is someone who loves you when you forget to love yourself. Again, a friend is someone who loves you when you forget to love yourself. Next one. 
Your insurmountable circumstances will remain insurmountable as long as you believe them insurmountable. This next one will make you chuckle. Take risk. If you win, you will be happy. If you lose, you will be wiser. That's a good one, isn't it? Take risk. If you win, you will be happy. If you lose, you will be wiser. All right, next one. Your journey is your own. Your path is different from others. It's okay if you are slower. That was deep. So often, I think our unhappiness comes from comparison. Again, this one is your journey is your own. Your path is different from others. It's okay if you are slower. So let's stop beating ourselves up, right? Just one step at a time. You're doing it your own way. Don't give up. Just one step at a time. Next one, actually, just out of pure coincidence. I'd love to say I planned this, but I didn't. But it's just a list of them that I found on social media. <laughs> it's, but it seems like I planned this. Here's the next one. It is not over till you give up on it. Again, it is not over till you give up on it. So much wisdom in that. All right, here's the next one. Love doesn't make the world go round. Love is what makes the ride worthwhile. That was deep, isn't it? Love doesn't make the world go round. Love is what makes the ride worthwhile. Next one. If you can't make up your mind despite constant internal debate, allow your heart to lead you. It knows the way. It knows what you want, yet what you resist. If something can't be resolved by logic, let your tuition, intuition hold your hand and guide you. It'll never take you to the wrong destination. It's another deep one. Next one. Forgiving yourself is a way of self-care. Again, forgiving yourself is a way of self-care. Stop carrying that shame, right? Forgive yourself. Next one. Let your love be world-changing because it is. Again, let your love be world-changing because it is. Next one. Three great pieces of advice here. Stay humble, work hard, be kind. Again, stay humble, work hard, be kind. Next one. The only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. And that one's one you got to chew on. The only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. That's one of them you can think on probably for 10 minutes. Next one. Don't push away your happiness of today for a perfect tomorrow. Celebrate with gratitude what you already have. It's another good one. Don't push away your happiness of today for a perfect tomorrow. Celebrate what, with gratitude what you already have. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. 
I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. Finally, I should mention my books. I've written 11 of them. You can find all of those books on Amazon by simply searching my name, Stan or Mitchell, or you can find a link to them in the Substack notes. Again, thanks so much, guys, for joining us this week. And with that, I am out.